The Entrepreneur's Journey with MIC is brought to you by the Mine Workers Investment Company, your active equity partner. So how did COVID-19 change us and the world in almost every way? Education, communication, innovation, from the way we work to where we work and our lifestyles. It was a global reset unlike any we have seen before. You can now shop from home, exercise from home, work from home. But what if when you are sick, you could get better from home? Enter Curo Medical. Aiming to pioneer Africa's first and largest virtual hospital, Curo brings a technology-enabled medical center right into your home. Joining me in this final episode of The Entrepreneur's Journey with MIC is Curo Medical co-founders Dr. Vuyani Mshomi and Ziko Pali, alongside MIC Impact Investment Manager Tato Nsiere. Let's dive into the purpose behind Curo Medical. Ziko, can you explain? I think at a micro level, um, we would say that we are trying to solve the problem of avoidable hospitalization. But a more, at a more macro level, we would say that we are tackling the seemingly insurmountable challenge of, you know, the lack of access to quality healthcare services. How does your platform work? Well, we are building the largest virtual hospital, perhaps globally, but I know at the moment, the largest in South Africa. And so What's we, a virtual hospital? A virtual hospital is basically a hospital that can take place in any place where a patient resides that could be in a senior living village, it could be at home in your own facility or whatever it is you call home. And what we then do is aggregate services and we bring the services that are normally provided in the context of a traditional brick and mortar facility and we bring those to your home. So your doctor, the monitoring, high grade ICU type monitoring that you normally get in the hospital, we bring that to your home medications, physiotherapy, nursing care, drips, the works and the comfort of your own home. We will be announcing about a radiological capability that will be done in the patient's home. Radiology at home? Radiology at home, in fact. Oh. In, in the most brilliant of ways. In fact, you would be getting more radiation from your TV than you would be getting from this particular device. But again, you will be able to have now through the work that we, we're, we're doing, x-ray of whatever kind from the comfort of your home with an immediate diagnosis within moments. Um, with a built-in AI capability that tied to your doctor being able to provide real-time virtual oversight. You've got monitoring that is taking place. You've got medication that is coming to your own home. And really, for the first time, healthcare is coming to the consumer. Zika, that doesn't sound very affordable. <laughs> yes, that's a common misconception, actually. But we were quite bullish about our business model from the very beginning. We believe quite strongly that um, affordability and quality need not be mutually exclusive. And we've deployed a number of strategies to maintain that uh, philosophy. For example, um, if you look at our technology, we were quite clear about the fact that we needed our tech to be built in-house. That way, you know, we managed to avoid some of the exorbitant pricing and frankly technical debt that you encounter when you decide to outsource your tech. When we look at hardware, 
to integrate onto our platform. Yes, we look at quality, but we're also very price sensitive. So, you know, if the wearable is prohibitively expensive, tends to be a complete non-starter for us. And finally, we have built strategic partnerships to manage things like our logistical operations in a really, really cost-effective and efficient way, which also helps us, I guess, maintain our focus on our core competencies. That's the bigger picture of Riani. I am now in a scenario where I need the kind of care you provide, and I'm hearing about radiology at home, I'm hearing about wearables, I'm hearing about AI, and I balk because I think it's going to be expensive. Help undo that misperception. What we are comparing our services to here is an unsustainable cost of hospitalization, where hospitalization is so expensive And what's most frustrating about it is that there isn't a commensurate increase in quality and health outcomes, right? So effectively, you are paying this ridiculous hotel fee for a hostel experience, right? And so we then shifted that and then focused our energy and efforts on the real things that get you better. But the process itself, we've tried to streamline in a way that is very similar to the usual patient experience and how they exit patient care. So when you unwell, you would go to your doctor, your general practitioner. Ordinarily, um, they would refer you to, you know, one of the big hospitals for you to be admitted, right? We then interrupt the process in the following way. Your GP can now admit you to the home. And they complete a very simple referral form, which is sent to us. Normally, when you unwell, you have to jump on a call with your medical aid. We take care of that for you. So all you need to do is to exist. Go to your doctor, get an assessment, make sure that you actually do have a clinical condition that needs treatment at home. They complete a one-page simple referral form. They send that to us. Our superb clinical administration team will process that, manage all pre-authorizations, all of this within minutes. We would then dispatch a team to where it's convenient for you, and that would be at home. And we would follow a very clear care plan. We would then become the doctor's hands and eyes in the patient's home. Our team would meet you. We'll set you up with a simple Band-Aid-like device, which is a simple chest patch. It's a chest biosensor, FDA-approved, CE-marked, really cutting-edge technology that, unlike the traditional hospital where they collect vital signs every four to eight hours, here we collect them minute by minute. It's transmitted to a 24-hour command center where doctors, nurses, clinical associates are working around the clock to make sure that you are well. And this is done in partnership with my care provider, my doctor. They'd be able to monitor what it is you are seeing? Absolutely. So one of two things usually happens. Either your doctor says, look, I think this is an amazing service. I want my patient to be a part of it. So let me refer them to the system, but I won't provide oversight. Because they don't really do, even if they've referred patients to hospital. Ordinarily, they can say, I want to provide oversight. And when they do provide oversight, they actually get reimbursed, so they get paid for being involved in your care at the similar rates or sometimes even higher than what they would get if they were seeing the patient in hospital. Only because greater value is being generated by looking after you at home from a clinical outcomes perspective and a cost perspective. So your doctor can log on to our platform from anywhere in the world and they can see in real time how you are doing. Because essentially, Zico, I'm not paying for the sheets. I'm yes. not paying for the bad food because often it is. Awful. I'm not paying for a nurse who might herself or himself be stretched in an under-resourced facility, private or public. Correct. What I would add to that is um, hospitals, as wonderful as they are, often create a false sense of security. You think that this idea of proximity to healthcare professionals somehow makes you safer. 
But what we've seen in many cases is unless you are picked up by the cleaner, very often you're in a lot of trouble between the ward rounds that doctors do in hospitals, which is in sharp contrast to what we are able to offer, which is close monitoring, minute by minute, where there are always eyes um, on the patient. How do your interventions work? Because if a patient's condition deteriorates rapidly, perhaps even unexpectedly, how quickly then, if I'm at home, would assistance come to me? I think I need to respond to that question in context. If you're lying in hospital and something happens to you at two o'clock in the morning, often no one picks that up until the seven o'clock round. Right. The doctor is at home. We promote visibility over proximity. So what visibility allows us to do is to be able to predict that you're going to run into trouble before that happens. So if we were to look at a single parameter, respiratory rate, the number of times you breathe per minute, right? Studies have shown that this parameter goes down at least six hours before cardiac arrest. But this is the worst recorded parameter in the hospital setting because no one's going to sit there and actually count your respiratory rate for a minute. So people make guesstimates, right? They look at you and they're like, today's 16, tomorrow it's 14, and they keep it moving. Whereas within our system, we're capturing this thing in real time. But there have been other instances where there is a sudden deterioration of these patients. And here we've got a network of emergency medical services providers who can actually respond much faster. And I think that's the value of, of our solution. So we honor race against time. And so the earlier you can pick that up, the faster you can actually intervene. Do you have a network of care providers that are primed to respond in my area should things go wrong? Absolutely. We've got rapid response protocols um, where we work with different providers and different schemes. We don't use the same emergency medical services numbers that you guys call. We get prioritized. When we onboard you, we've got very clear protocols around how to access your establishment. If you live in an estate, who do we speak to? How do we get in there? And all of those things. So we build that risk in when patients get onboarded so that it makes it easier for us to get inside. Zico, you guys were just sitting one day shooting the breeze in 2018 and you thought, oh, we know, that's what we'll do. Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> Look, my personal story is I got into law, decided to be a lawyer because I was interested in solving complex world problems. Happened to serve on the board of Chris Hane by Gwyneth Hospital during my time in practice. And that was the first time that I got to be confronted with this particular world problem. Um, and I realized the urgency of this world problem. Over the same period, I then encountered Vuyani, who naturally being a doctor and having experienced the challenges in the public health system, you know, had his own burning a passion for this problem. So really, that is where this was born. How would this solution help deal with the crisis in public health in South Africa, for example? So... Through building Cura Medical, I think we have built an alternative care model that is cost efficient and that is sustainable. And if you consider the fact that South Africa is a resource constrained setting, I think that, you know, we need to prioritize care delivery models that are accessible. Um, as far as dealing with the challenges in the public health care system, I think we have a slightly unique perspective in that we feel like the private sector has a really meaningful role to play in reducing the burden on government. If you look at the statistics, the resources continue to be concentrated in the private sector, despite the fact that it only services approximately 16% of the, uh, of the population. 
And we think therein lies the opportunity. We think there's a real opportunity to channel those resources towards solutions like ours and care delivery models like ours that are sustainable and that are specifically geared towards reducing the burden on government and reducing the inequality gap in, in healthcare. How has the Department of Health responded to your solution? Look, you know, we've always had an appetite to work with government. Um, we often say that we developed our solution for the public sector. However, it was really important for us not to launch our solution in the public sector because we were well aware of some of the misconceptions that could come from that. The idea that, you know, you are launching a low-cost solution in the public sector could be interpreted as, you know, you're offering something inferior to public sector patients, which is not what we wanted. Our solution is world-class, and we wanted to demonstrate it amongst paying patients and paying customers so that by the time we take it to the public sector, there are no question marks about the quality of our services and what we're trying to do. The medical aids, have they jumped on board? Absolutely. I mean, at the moment, we've got about, what, 80, 85% of all medical aids that reimburse our solution. But just to build on what Zico was saying around the public sector, it's, you know, it's not that we haven't engaged, we have, um, because we appreciate that there's an urgency to the work that we're, we're, we're doing. But I think there are important considerations, and I think Zico's already spoken to them, including in order for the solution to be sustainable, there's got to be funding for it. And I think that's always been a, a challenge. And I'm going to be very generous with my words here. I think they are just competing priorities at the moment. But it is clear for us, um, if you look at other countries with far more developed economies, other countries with developing economies, that home becomes a viable place of care for many, many patients. And the reason why that is the case is because patients don't live in hospitals. And so the sooner you can treat patients in an environment in which they're meant to recover, they tend to do a lot better. But also, you're not blind to what is happening. I mean, to give a very simple example on this point, we've got patients who, you know, when we go and look after them at home, and honest to God, these patients are adhering to the medication. But they receive medication at home. They've been storing their insulin in the fridge, and they don't exactly recycle stock. Right. So guys are still sitting there with a stock that expired in 2003. They're taking the additional one that they're receiving. And when the doctor says your glucose is out of control, bring it, you know, to the rooms, they take whatever one they recently received and they show that. But at home, they're taking a different one because they don't want to waste any stock. Right. And so for the first time, you are now no longer blind to that as a treating practitioner. And you can actually sit and work with the family. I could provide another example about smoking. People who've got significant lung damage as a result of smoking, they have quit. But when you get at home, you realize that everyone at home still smokes. And in fact, them stopping smoking doesn't really, really help as, as a secondary participant to smoking. It really doesn't help. And so when you sit down and you engage with a family, you find that the outcomes tend to be so much, so much better. And we believe that we can actually do this at great scale, even for the public sector patient. Let's talk about scalability because ultimately that's what the funding is going to be about to take it to the next level. But perhaps before we even do that, talk to me about your funding journey. The concept works. You're excited. It's a world first. It's got this enormous potential. Did the funders trip over themselves, banging down your door saying, he has money? Not quite, right? Not quite. <laughs> no. Look, uh, fairly long part of our journey was sweat equity. And by sweat equity, I mean kind of foregoing opportunities to earn an income elsewhere to build this business. And as I said, there was a good two years. 
what actually gave us permission to go out looking for money was when we landed our first contract. So we landed, I don't know if I'm able to name the administrator, MedScheme, you know, one of the largest administrators in the country, decides to, to give us a chance. And when we landed that contract, we were then able to approach, you know, our initial pool of angel investors to help us get to proof of concept because we then had a client to, to service. And once we got to proof of concept, it became a lot easier to then convince more mature and institutional investors to back us in order to take the business to the next level. Enter MIC. What was your first impression of Curo Medical? I think our first impression was team was a very well-balanced team. Very highly skilled in each of their respective fields when it comes to, you know, Vuyani being medical doctor with um, various uh, post, post-grad qualifications. Same thing with Zico as well as the, the CTO. So when we looked at that team, we were looking at that and saying, if there's ever a team where you feel you can trust to put your money behind, the team looks extremely balanced. The second thing was that when we looked at the other investors on the on the table, they were specialists within the industry that were investors. So Clearly, if they were able to show the solution and prove the efficacy of the solution to other individuals who are specifically operate in the healthcare industry, it was also really a green flag for us to say, you know, the guys are really sitting on something here. And then the next thing was, I must be honest, as MIC, we've got a um, one of our impact investing pillars is around access to affordable healthcare. And um, when we looked at the model, what I was trying to achieve and, you know, when you're assessing these businesses, there's a key question, uh, the why now? Why would this solution work now as opposed to 10 years ago, as opposed to 15 years ago? And when you looked at where the world is, the type of technology we have, like uh, Vianney mentioned, there's AI involved, the hardware, the wearables. You looked at it and you said, you know what, there's no greater time than now to invest in a solution that leverages all these pieces. And when we looked at all of those things coming together, I think um, it was a no-brainer for us. And of course, a key element of how you choose partnerships is scalability. What did you see with Cura Medical? The business is essentially looking to build the world's largest virtual hospital. And if you think about anything that's virtual tech space, you know, it's something you can switch on really once you've got your core foundation in place. Uh, you can really switch it on uh, at, at the drop of a hat. And if you think about the accessibility of your day-to-day wearables, like for example, South Africa has one of the highest penetrations of um, cell phones in the world, um, where you've got something like almost three devices per person. So if we're able to get that many devices in people's hands, then I'm not so concerned about getting a wearable into a person's hands, right? But the technology behind it around analyzing the vital signs, that becomes the niche that you're looking for. And it's very clear from looking at the team that they had it really well thought out. And so scalability was, was not a question mark for us. Still to come on the entrepreneur's journey with MIC. At the end of the day, you're sitting on a beautiful solution that you think can help a lot of people. And all you need to do is knock on the right door, get the guys into the meeting, and you know that it'll sell itself. Any learnings from the pandemic, from COVID-19? Every learning from COVID-19. You know, we, we had set out to start building the business in 2018 and we had a team, et cetera. And I think COVID basically just said the time is now, right? Use what you've got. People are dying. And not only did it accelerate our own development process and, and, and the business, but also the adoption of our solution. So that was big, big learnings from us. 
the disruption in sub- global supply chains was, a, I think, had a, a significant impact that I think could be prevented. And so even how we are thinking about the businesses, how do we protect ourselves from the next pandemic as a, as a business, right? And then lastly, resilience. I think that was the biggest. Uh, I, I think we're, we are a fundamentally a, a resilient people. And I think we were able to demonstrate that through I think our, our own business, our ability to go into into patients' homes. I mean, our teams were literally tra- facilitating the transition of patients from ICU, high care, right through to the homes. Patients were scared because their loved ones were leaving in body bags lying next to them, and they didn't want to go home without curo. And so we saw, again, there's a real opportunity to reignite confidence in healthcare, even amidst amidst the worst of crises. And, and that, for me, is probably one of the reasons why we keep doing what we're doing. Mm, I think what I would add to that is the importance of agility. For a startup, I have to say, we have quite a mature governance structure. And as the business grows, something Tato will know we are protecting fiercely is our ability to stay nimble and to make decisions quickly. So I would say that is probably for me the biggest lesson from the pandemic. How will something like NHI, whenever it does become reality, how will it impact the solution? Well, we think our business is perfect for NHI. A lot of the discussions around NHI are focused around sort of the funding mechanisms but we're not really hearing a lot of discussions around the provider space and some of the inefficiencies and escalating costs in the private provider space specifically. And if you look at us, I mean, I think we are perfectly positioned to present a sustainable solution to government as a private provider, which is what the NHI ultimately needs to to be sustainable. I think a big lesson for us was that having money during COVID didn't guarantee access to healthcare. And I remember I was on a call with someone and I said, the only bed that is guaranteed is your own. And we saw our healthcare systems world over buckle under immense pressure. And the idea that somehow miraculously we are now able to support a healthcare system using the current solutions is not a sustainable solution. But what gives us and hope is that there are organizations like Cura Medical that in the face of what is planned, um, prepared or not, um, there are entrepreneurs that are drilling through, trying to make sure that even when NHI comes into effect, that it actually continues to be sustainable. How did MIC enter your journey? Got a call from Tato. Hi, my name is Tato. We've been looking at you, Kiro, um, and um, we'd like to have a conversation. Can we make up, set up some time, come through to your offices? Went straight to Zico and I'm like, we just got a call from MIC. We then set up a, a meeting at our offices in, in Bryanston and immediately, you know, it, I think it was clear for us that there was an alignment of values and purpose. And it just boiled down to, I guess, the, the contractual fundamentals and whether we could align on the value we think we're creating and the value that they think they should be paying to get a seat at the table. And ultimately, what did they invest in Cura? They invested 25 million rands. That's the first um, I think we're going to be on a journey with, with MIC for a very, very long time. Um, I think for us, this is the the initial bit of investment. Even now, for example, there are already conversations about, all right, guys, so, you know, when do you need additional funds? How do we assist in really taking this to, to the next level? But what we like about MIC is that they're not just a capital partner. They truly believe in the impact and the business. People don't really back Black entrepreneurs in this country. You get given a miracle, right? And say, look, here's a check. 
go and, you know, work your miracle. Whereas if you look at, you know, my, my white counterparts, do you realize, you know, failure, for example, is something that's baked in to that investment, right? They understand that you're going to figure these things out. You're going to run into a bit of trouble here and you run. It's baked in. As soon as, God forbid, you know, something goes wrong in our case, people assume that, you know, you were incompetent, etc. And and that's not what we're getting for MIC. And I think that for us has been really refreshing with all our shareholders. They don't just believe in the big dream and the vision and the business itself. There's a real backing of the founders, an interest in finding how do we further develop you as, as operators of the business? How else do we support the business through our other investments? Because that's a crucial part of how you've been selecting these entrepreneurs, that you're not just giving them cash, you're not just signing a check and walking away, mm. but you provide other assistance, maybe even networks through your other investments. Tell us about that aspect of your journey with Kuro. Yeah, so when we started the journey, just generally in Kulisani, I mean, there were three key elements that we identified that are critical for the success of any business. It's essentially access to capital, access to skills, and access to markets. One thing, MIC being who we are, capital was something that we knew very much so there's something that we have. But we also acknowledge that, you know, the skill set that we have is there from a corporate finance perspective. We can understand which transactions to do, how to value them. But there might be certain details around HR compliance, operational at a SME level or at a startup level in your businesses that we knew that this is still a journey that we ourselves are embarking on. So we needed additional individuals and hence why we've onboarded external service providers to do those diagnostics so that they can help guide the roadmap for the founders uh, on the startup side. But the access to market side, specifically looking at networks, is also an area that we're quite strong in given who we are and our uh, reputation our ability to access certain potential customers and other partners is an area that we felt is something that we can bring to bear. I mean, it was highlighted abundantly to us when we were doing our research that black founders just don't have the same networks. You know, They don't get the same opportunity to test out, do a pilot in the same way that their other counterparts get to. So we, to the extent that on a regular basis, in our regular internal Manco meetings, which happen every two weeks, it's almost an imperative to, to highlight whenever any of the founders say they're looking for access to this network, does anybody know that my responsibility is to go into that forum amongst our team and say, guys, XYZ business that we've invested in is looking for access to this particular CEO or this particular business. Does anybody know? Can anybody facilitate that introduction? And we do our utmost to make sure that we facilitate that because at the end of the day, you're sitting on a beautiful solution that you think can help a lot of people. And all you need to do is knock on the right door, get the guys into the meeting, and you know that it'll sell itself. And that's your bet on South Africa. Indeed. That's MIC's clear bet to say, we believe in black entrepreneurs in South Africa. We believe in black founders and we want to give them the fuel for them to thrive. What does 25 million rand buy? 25 million changes the, the slope of my curve from a pretty measured curve to one that drives exponential growth, right? And when we, and that impact is from sort of different components from a tech perspective. It, I mean, everyone knows that, you know, developers in this country are very expensive. We are competing with AWS and Microsoft and everybody else. So we're able to hire more experienced, seasoned, really, really good guys so they can actually build. So that for us is big. There's more into predictive capabilities that we're doing. So a lot of the work um, is going into uh, the AI development space. We are hiring more 
client-facing um, practitioners, so doctors and nurses, etc., to be able to to look after the patients. Contrary to what many people believe that this is like a, a human sort of resource-intense program, it actually isn't. We're just more efficient with our use. So what that means is that we make sure that the patients that require in-person care get the right quality in-person care. So that's what it does. When we got MIC, I think we were in a handful of, of provinces, um, but now we are able to go to Rebecca, which we're live and we're doing well in Free State. We're live, we're doing well, and we've just opened in KZN as well, um, which really just leaves us with Western Cape Northwest and, and Limpopo. So our ability to expand and set up in, in, in those territories. And um, we also have presence in, in Namibia, and that's going well. So. Um, from a product diversification uh, perspective, uh, their funding has really accelerated our ability to launch additional products. We are known for hospital at home, but we've got a transitional care program which is designed to prevent patients from going back into hospital after they've been discharged. There's an in-hospital solution. We are not just outside, but we're supporting our nurses who are run, what, off their feet and tired, they're busy, and we're able to provide monitoring in the general ward for patients. And then lastly, we get to flex a little bit in bringing additional technologies like radiology in the patient's home. And all of those, you know, have been unlocked by the funding um, and the support that we've received. Zico, where to next? Uh, we want to dominate first South Africa and then every emerging market we can get our hands on. How are you going to go global? The good thing is that we're addressing a global challenge. And I think in many ways, the global South has figured out a lot of things that I think the global North is struggling with. Whether that be immigration issues, nothing new here. Racism, nothing new. Healthcare is not anything new. And I think if we are able to solve this particular healthcare challenge in a context where we don't have much of a budget, we've got electricity, supply issues, etc. By the time we get into areas where half these problems are solved, it just becomes a lot easier. Our growth strategies are going to be very different depending on the jurisdictions, given the differences in healthcare systems. In our areas, we'll have joint ventures. Other areas will expand directly. We'll license our technology and clinical protocols. But given the, the kind of impact and the urgency, we will definitely go down whatever we believe to be is the most efficient, the most sustainable, and the most cost-effective for the end user. Using technology for the greater good and making healthcare that much more accessible. A huge thank you to Dr. Vianim Mshomi and Ziko Pali from Cura Medical, as well as MIC Impact Investment Manager Tatun Tsiere for joining me in this episode of the entrepreneur's journey with MIC. Whether you're a startup looking to impress investors or you're looking to invest early in a potential unicorn but aren't sure what qualities to look for, there are countless gems of knowledge throughout this entrepreneur's journey with MIC Podcast. I'm Bongani Bingwa. Thanks for joining me. The Entrepreneur's Journey with MIC was brought to you by the Mindworkers Investment Company, your active equity partner. Catch new episodes on 702.co.za or your favorite podcast app.